Welcome to the Black Hereford Chronicles with Jen Hill. Join me for insightful conversations and interviews about our cattle industry. Here we discuss the shared struggles and successes of this life we've chosen as ranchers. Here, we seek to learn from the experts around us, eager to grow and challenge the accepted. Here we are, the Black Hereford Chronicles. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to tell you about an awesome sponsor. Kentucky's Walters Cattle Farm is home to Robert and Sandy Walters, who have been long-standing supporters of all things American Black Hereford. With legacy bloodlines and cattle full of muscling and depth, they're an operation you want to check out. You can find Walters Cattle Farms on Facebook or give Robert a call at 270-832-1180. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of the Black Hereford Chronicles. I've got a couple of guests on here today, and I think we're going to put together a really interesting show for y'all today. So I'm going to start by having Ryan introduce herself. I think Ryan is going to take up kind of the bulk of our time today, and I'm really excited to dig into this. So, Ryan, will you kind of tell us who you are and what you do in the industry? Yeah, so my name is uh, Ryan Bolt, and I am the lead geneticist for International Genetic Solutions. And so International Genetic Solutions is a uh, genetic evaluation provider, and we run the beef industry's largest multi-breed genetic evaluation uh, that has about 20 million animals and roughly 500,000 genotypes that are included in in each weekly analysis. And so uh, we calculate EPDs on a a multitude of traits, whether that's growth, carcass, stability, cavities, and adding more to the, the list as we go. So. Well, and IGS does the EPDs for the American Black Hereford Association. So I want to make sure I, I get that out there. We are also joined today. I've got kind of a frequent flyer on here with us uh, just to help make sure I think of all the questions and, and give us a good conversation. So, Mark, will you remind everybody who you are? You bet. I'm Mark Ibsen. I'm a member of the board of the Black Herford Association. And and I was asked to be on here to, to keep Jennifer in line. And, uh, <laughs> we will see if we can't make this as uh, good of an experience for our breeders as possible to explain how our EPDs work and, and what makes them work. I think it's important. Well, I think sometimes EPDs get thought of as like this magical number and, and we look at them, right? We'll see them in a sale catalog and, and hopefully we kind of have an idea of what number we're looking for, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we understand what that EPD really represents right? Or where it came from. So Ryan, if you don't mind, I would love to start by just kind of going through the basic EPDs, just kind of one by one and asking you, you know, what goes into that? What is that EPD really represent? Is that good with you? Yeah, sure. We can do that. All right. So let's start at the beginning with CED. What in the world is CED? Uh, so CED stands for Cavanese Direct. Um, so that's the ability of a bull's progeny to be born unassisted or a percentage of a bull's progeny that we expect to be born unassisted. Uh, so for that trait, a higher number is better because more of those animals will be born without assistance versus a lower number could uh, mean that more of the resulting progeny are born requiring assistance. So what goes into that? Is that people self-reporting when they had to assist a calf? I assume there's some genomics into that. Yeah, sure. Um, so the 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 Cavanese evaluation is results in not only the Cavanese direct EPD, but also the Cavanese maternal EPD. And so uh, the difference between direct and maternal is maternal, Cavanese maternal is the ability of a bull's daughters to give birth unassisted as a two-year-old. And so kind of the phenotypes that feed into that are birth weight and then Cavanese scores. Um, So we use the BIF 
uh, scale for cavities, which is one to five, one being no assistance, uh, five being abnormal presentation, and then there's kind of varying levels uh, in between there um, for different levels of assistance. And so um, one of the important things to, to take into consideration for cavities versus birth weight is, or a birth weight EPD, for example, is uh, variations in birth weight do not account for all of the variations in calving difficulty. And so if we think about uh, what EPD kind of in this hemisphere or this space we want to focus on, really the calving EPDs are, are more important to focus on than, than birth weight because of that um, variation that's not explained by birth weight explicitly. And so um, that is a, a single step genetic evaluation. And so as I as I talk about single step genetic evaluation, kind of the way I break that down is there's really kind of three pillars or, or three types of information that go into single step genetic evaluation. Uh, the first would be uh, phenotype data. So in this case, that would be birth weight information and then uh, cavity scores on two-year-old females because that's where we see the most variation in, in calving difficulty. Uh, the second is pedigree information. And so uh, pedigree is important because it allows us to not only link uh, different herds or different contemporary groups together, but also all of the animals uh, within the evaluation. And then the third is uh, genomics. Um, and so the type of, of analysis that we run for at IGS is, is known as a, a marker effects model. And so uh, we use different locations across the genome that that show uh, high relationship to traits of interest and and include those uh, for all genotyped animals in the calculation of their EPDs. And so uh, the reason why it's called a single step analysis is because all of that information is uh, combined at the same time uh, to to. Um, predict EPDs for all animals in the evaluation. I'm so glad you brought up the way birth weight ties into that, because I think sometimes we see cavities and birth weight kind of mingled in a way that they're not. And it's really important for people to recognize that a, a much smaller birth weight does not necessarily mean a cavities score. So I'm so glad you brought that up. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think that brings up, uh, you know, an, another good point of, of indicator traits versus economically relevant traits. And so in that instance, really, birth weight is an indicator trait, whereas cavities is the economically relevant trait that we really want to focus on and, and make genetic improvement in. So not to take us down a crazy rabbit hole, but I'm going to. What would you say are those most, I guess, just those stoutest economic traits that we should be paying attention to? Yeah, so, um, and this may bleed over a little bit into our our index, um, uh, I guess, discussion or, or discussion about economic selection indexes. And so, uh, as you kind of look at, at weightings and different economic indexes, uh, the number one trait or the um, kind of maybe suite of traits, if you want to kind of consider that, that is going to be uh, most economically relevant are going to be the ones related towards fertility and longevity. Um, and so there's a, a myriad of factors that that really kind of influence the, the economic value that those types of traits have within um, commercial beef uh, production. And, and really, a lot of that has to do with opportunity costs, cow depreciation, uh, different things with having to um, raise a female uh, and have her grow prior to entering into the beef herd, as well as uh, disadvantages in weaning weights out of younger females. So there's a whole myriad of things that, that influence that. And so um, as you look at, you know, economic models or, or economic selection indexes in, in the beef industry, 
uh, generally those types of traits are are kind of more heavily weighted in in those resulting indexes. And so um, as we think about kind of the the most important or, or really important traits, um, uh, those are are obviously uh, pretty high or or at the top of the list. And then um, from there, it kind of has varying levels of of influence um, depending on um, kind of, I would say, what your sector of the of the ag industry is, um, and, and really what what traits are going to be important to you, and and what the endpoint of of that index is, and so, um, you know, obviously, if you're selling calves at different time points, whether you're you're selling those at at harvest time or at weaning, uh, different traits are are going to be more important in that scenario, or, um, you know, really, it, for the good of the industry, the the goal should be to try to make uh, selection decisions on economic indexes that cover all aspects of the beef supply chain. And sometimes that's um, challenging because maybe not all the value is realized in, in different sectors, but really as we, we continue to um, move forward and try to drive beef demand, that's really the traits that are properly weighted in proper indexes are are those that are going to have the largest influence over those resulting indexes to um, really try to make the beef industry as profitable across all sectors as we can. Well, from a personal philosophy perspective, our goal in, at our operation here has always been a higher balance is the thing that we kind of push. And I think you nailed that perfectly that we've got to stay economically relevant without sacrificing on either end. So thinking about weaning weights and yearling weights, those are are pretty self-explanatory. Anything that would surprise me in there? Um, So the kind of, I guess, growing into the next trait complex or or, um, genetic evaluation would be our growth genetic evaluation, which would um, include birth weights, weaning weights, uh, and post-weaning gain or or yearling weights. Um, And so EPDs that would um, be coming out of that model would obviously be birth weight EPD, weaning weight, yearling weight EPD as well as average daily gain and weaning weight maternal, or as it's more commonly referred to, milk would be the uh, EPDs coming out of that genetic evaluation. And so um, that evaluation, like calving ease, is is single step and includes all the the different kind of data sources that that I referenced uh, for calving ease as well. So I'm going to pick on our our place this year. We had a horrible winter last year, worst in 70 years, right? It was a rough winter to get through and we're fall calvers. So our weaning weights this year were down, right? We were lucky everything showed up to the bunk every day. How big of an impact should I expect one bad year to have on my herd EPDs? Yeah, so I I think that's... um maybe a misconception of the the phenotypic values themselves. And so within a genetic evaluation, all of the phenotypic comparisons are are made within contemporary groups. And so the idea behind a contemporary group is to try to group or assign animals uh, to groups that experience uh, similar management or environmental conditions. And so um, like your situation where uh, there is a environmental constraint, I don't know if that's the right term, but maybe environmental challenge is, is a more accurate terminology there. Um, you know, we're still making those comparisons within the contemporary group. And so that contemporary group effect um really accounts for some of those environmental challenges and it looks more at not necessarily it compares animals within the group not necessarily the raw phenotypic values with within that group i love that answer thank you <laughs> so so ryan uh, what what i am or uh interpret what you're saying are the studs are still studs whether or not they're just a little bit lighter than they were the year before 
Yeah. So, I mean, obviously within, within that, um, you know, we're, we're looking more at, at deviations rather than just the, the phenotypic value. And you may see, um, you know, uh, some reduction in variance potentially, but still w- by making those comparisons within contemporary groups, we try to account for those co- common environmental uh, conditions that, that happen with, within a group. I think that's important for people to hear, too, because there's kind of a gut reaction when something goes wrong, right, to not want to report your data. And so I think yeah. it really matters, yeah, for people to hear that it's it's more than just that. Yeah, yeah, don't do that. Data is always good. Um, that that's that's the opposite <laughs> of what you should do. Yeah. And but it's counterintuitive, you know, we're yeah. Yeah. like a little kid. You spill the milk. You want to hide it. You know, you don't you don't want to share that. So as much as we can get that message out, the more data you put in, the better off you are, even when it's ugly data. Yep. So I want to pick on milk for just a little bit. The higher the milk number, the better. Right. Like I want astronomically high milk numbers. Yeah, milk's milk's an interesting trait. Um, And and so it, it milk. So the prediction of milk is differences in uh, wean pounds of wean or pounds of calf at weaning, um, and so obviously the the more pounds of calf that you have is more advantageous economically. But the challenge becomes that with more um, milk production is that you have um, higher maintenance energy requirements within your herd, and so. Um, kind of the way you know most people view milk or, or look at milk is is not necessarily a, a maximization type strategy, but but more of an optimization type strategy. And so, um, you know, different environments and and I think you know this has been well documented in in literature over time is that um, you know really trying to identify you know harsher environments are not going to be able to support quite as much milk as maybe uh more frugal <laughs> or uh, better environments frugal's the wrong word but better environments um and so you know really as as you kind of breed animals and and think about what environment that that they're in entering into um you know something that that you kind of want to consider and so uh sometimes as you you think about that or you think about some of those constraints it, it they kind of offset each other a little bit of of that additional energy requirement versus those uh, additional pounds of weaned calf um kind of tend to to offset each other. And really that becomes, as you're thinking about making selection decisions, try to optimize that, that value and, and maybe not getting too extreme one way or the other may be kind of the right spot to, to be. Well, and I would add to that, not every udder can handle a really <laughs> high amount of milk. Fair. So CEM, you kind of touched on, oh, I skipped right over TM. Let's, let's, cause that's kind of tied into what we talked about earlier, but anything in TM that you would add? Yeah. So total maternal is a combination of, of the weaning weight and uh, milk EPD essentially. And so um, that kind of is, uh, I guess, a historical it's it was more popular i think kind of historically than uh but still because it's been there for a long time um kind of helps with give that combination or an understanding of both the direct and maternal components of of weaning weight perfect i'm going to roll over cem because we already kind of talked about it let's talk about stability yeah, so uh, stability is a prediction of the percentage of daughters that will remain into the herd until six years of age. And so um, I kind of touched on this a, a bit earlier in terms of fertility and longevity being really important. Uh, stability is going to be an EPD that's that's going to be a real driver of, of the prediction of that. And so um, essentially, 
the way that evaluation works is we, um, again, it's a single step evaluation. So we use uh, pedigree, uh, genomics, and then performance records. The way those observations are formed is uh, females must first have a calf at two years of age. And then they get an observation at three, four, five, and six, either a success or a failure of whether or not they have a calf reported. And so uh, from then, uh, we use what's known as a random regression model, which essentially that just is a model that's suited for evaluating data kind of over time within the same individual. So our over time is the different years or the the different observations. And so um, we put all of that together and then uh, convert that to a percentage basis. And, and that's how uh, kind of the information leading to a, a stability EPD. So this may be kind of a silly question, but thinking about it as someone who primarily markets to commercial cattlemen, I'm not going to have a whole lot of performance records right on the offspring of many of my bulls. Yeah. How does correct. that play in? Yeah. So, um, I mean, it would be the females that are retained within your, within, within your own herd. herd. Yep. Um, now if, if you guys had a like a commercial recording program and had commercial producers that that wanted to record that type of data, um, you know we could we could include that in the evaluation. But for the most part, a majority of that is is just on the seed stock animals themselves and the seed stock females, um, and then their calving records. Perfect. Can I jump in here, Jennifer? Absolutely. So with the stability EPD. That's most of your data is derived from your uh, disposal codes on your cows. Is that correct? Um, so currently, we're we're not using the disposal codes in the evaluation, but that's part of. So one of the challenges has been historically is each association has had a different dis set of disposal codes and and different uh definitions for each of them. But that's um, actually a project that that we've been working on is is trying to a unify those across the IGS evaluation and and BIF a couple of years ago uh put together a, a really nice list of kind of common disposal codes that uh a lot of the IGS partner associations have have um adopted for the most part maybe a few variations here and there but for the most part it's been uh, pretty universally adopted. And so that's that's helped a lot with the consistency in, in definitions uh, across different associations. And so uh, now, now with that, um, I think we're going to have a much easier time of, of bringing that type of data into the evaluation. And so really disposal codes um, the way we would look at that is is kind of modifying the success or failure of a female at a, a different time point. But the, the evaluation or the evaluation structure itself would, would stay pretty consistent to what it is now. Okay. Docility, anything noteworthy in there? I mean, that that's a pretty self-explanatory one. <laughs> Yeah, so so docility is is one of the few traits that's a, a single trait analysis, and so uh, really the only are the phenotypes that are are being included in that evaluation are are docility scores, and so um, yeah, pretty pretty self explanatory. It's um, just using those docility scores. So continue to to send those in because that's the only way you're going to build a lot of accuracy on that trait. I jump it into the carcass traits. CW. Yeah, so uh, CW is um, carcass weight. And then 
So for the cargo straits, we actually run two evaluations. One I call the the muscle model or the muscle and weight model, and the other one um, more the the fat model, I guess I'll call it. And so uh, the for the muscle and weight evaluation, we have um, the carcass weight and ribeye area or REA EPD um, coming from that evaluation. And so traits we or phenotypes we include in that evaluation are obviously any sort of or any carcass data that we have. So actual carcass weights, uh, actual ribeye areas from from harvest, harvested um, animals um, will be included in that evaluation. And then we also use uh, correlated traits. So traits that are kind of indicator traits is how I um I guess, term that before. So some of those indicators would be uh, things like weaning weight, uh, post-weaning gait, as well as ultrasound ribeye area would be um, included in that model. Uh, the other carcass genetic evaluation or, or kind of the fat model uh, would produce the um, marbling EPD um, as well as back fat. And so uh, the phenotypes or, or the traits that are included in that are obviously, again, actual carcass marbling scores and then actual carcass uh, back fat measurements, as well as uh, ultrasound IMF scores and then ultrasound back fat scores as well. How heavily weighted are the or is the ultrasound, that raw ultrasound data in those EPDs? Yeah, um, so that really the weighting that that those traits will get is is dependent on what the genetic correlation is between the ultrasound traits uh, and the carcass trait. And so, um, obviously, because they're they're indicator traits, it's it's not the same trait. They're taken at at different time points, uh, things of that nature. Uh, but most of those are are pretty moderately to to highly correlated between um, uh, carcass and and ultrasound traits. And and really, as we think about seed stock animals, that's going to be our our best predictor, our best indicator trait, because we're not harvesting those animals. Obviously, we want them to go on and be parents in, in other uh, group or herds or populations. Um, and so as we think about those those indicator traits, we, you know, we have to collect those to to have some sort of, of metric or or data to to help us identify genetic differences uh, among those animals. I appreciate that answer. There's been a bit of a discussion lately, and I had Leoma on a couple of weeks ago, and we kind of talked a little bit about it too, about whether genomics are replacing the need for ultrasound data. So I think it's always good to kind of get the perspective from the people that are actually crunching those numbers, whether or not yeah. that matters. Yeah, so so the challenge is, is that... Um, Phenotypes are always going to be important in a genetic evaluation and, and continue continuing to collect phenotypes over generations is very important because the phenotypic information is important for informing the genomic information in the evaluation as well. And so the the challenge is is i understand we, you know there's only so many dollars to go around each year and and sometimes we have to make decisions but in in order if our goal ultimately is to get the best metrics that we can in terms of genetic potential of our seed stock animals or um the way that we do that is by by putting in the most data and information as we can into the genetic evaluation. And so that's not just genomics, that's phenotype, you know, collecting as many phenotypes as we can combined with that genomic information uh, to get the most accurate prediction we can on those animals. Mark, how are you feeling about the carcass data? I feel good. I thought it was an excellent explanation. I, I'm sad that we don't have as much phenotypic data entered for our breed, and hopefully that uh, will resolve itself in the near future. 
Deciding who will host your online sale can be overwhelming. There's plenty of online sale companies out there, all offering pretty similar services. But what if there was one that was simply designed with you in mind? Ranch HQ is your sale done your way. No commissions, no misdirects to other sales, no questioning how many bidders you have signed up or what happens to all of the data on your sale. Ranch HQ leaves all of the sale decisions and data in your hands, allowing you to customize your sale and maximize your future marketing. Ranch HQ will create an online sale website just for you. Bidders and tire kickers sign up for your sale on a customized sale site that's, well, all you. If you want to truly be at the helm of your online sale, you want Ranch HQ. You can learn more about Ranch HQ at ranchhq.app or shoot them an email at contact at ranchhq.app. Ranch HQ, your sale, your way. So let's jump in to the indices. I think um, this is where things get a little bit interesting because IGS has some different ones than some of the other breeds do. Mm-hmm. And I actually really love API. It's my favorite. I know it's weird <laughs> to have a favorite one, but I do. <laughs> so talk to us about API. Yeah. So um, I guess I'll I'll maybe first start by talking about indexes kind of in general, and then maybe I can, uh, I've got experience with several of them, so I can kind of maybe uh, go that way. Um, so really, as we kind of think about indexes, there's there's really, I'd say, three main types of indexes. It, and so the, the first and the most all-encompassing uh, would be a whole life cycle index. Uh, and so that would generally, you know, cover traits not only in the cow-calf sector, also through the feedlot and, and harvest sector of the industry. And so those are generally, you know, indexes that, that combine all of the economically relevant traits that, that we have um, predictions for. Uh, other types of indexes would be uh, maternal indexes. So those might be more kind of focused on, um, you know, kind of pre-conception through pre-weaning or, or kind of the, more the cow-calf sector of, of the industry. And then the third would be uh, terminal indexes, which should kind of look more um, at some of those post-weaning and, and harvest type traits. And so um, in, in the instance of, of API, um, so that was uh, uh, an index that would be considered a whole life cycle index. Um, and so that, you know, really kind of economically weights different traits from conception uh, through harvest. And then the other one that that's available is TI, which would be more of a, a terminal type index. And so, as we kind of think about those those different indexes, are are what you know really we're trying to to predict differences in in profitability of those different indexes. Um, you know, API is is obviously trying to identify or is trying to identify animals that have the most economic benefit across the beef supply chain. And so, um, and then TI, you know, really kind of focuses more on those those terminal traits and and looking at that. It does include other traits as as well, but really, kind of the main focus is is those terminal traits. I think part of why I like indexes so much, beyond the fact that they take you know this whole table of information and, and make it easier for me to pinpoint what I'm looking at is it kind of touches a little bit on something you said earlier, knowing your operation and what you're doing with those animals, right? That should determine which of these numbers you are putting the most emphasis on. So do you retain heifers? Do you not? If you're not someone who's interested in retaining your own heifers, TI is probably something you should be paying attention to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think that's very very important as well is is understanding you know what are the economic drivers within your your operation and and you know one thing 
that that's important to remember about indexes is um, they're actually pretty robust um, across different situations. And so I, I would say just because, you know, maybe you think your situation is, is slightly different than, than what average is, they're still going to be good predictors within your, you know, situation because they, they, because where you're combining the multiple different traits in one economic selection index, it it is uh, pretty robust across different economic assumptions and and things of that nature. Okay, now I want to get a little bit harder. Accuracies. Accuracies are super confusing. (laughs) So where does the accuracy number come from? What's going into that? Yeah, so so accuracy. So one way to to think about accuracy is um, it's a repre- representation of of the amount of information that we have available to us to make uh, the prediction. So the amount of data that's um, behind a prediction. And so as we think about kind of drivers for increases in accuracy, the the number one driver, the only way that you're really going to get high accuracy EPDs or or, uh, the highest level of accuracy is, is through progeny data. And so that's why we generally see that you know, AI sires or, or um, you know, sires that are used widely across different herds um, have the highest accuracy values. Um, and then depending on, you know, if that animal has a, a phenotype for that trait recorded on it, that's going to uh, increase accuracy. If it has half or full siblings that, that have that data recorded, also going to um, increase accuracy. And, and so another way to kind of think about accuracy is um, a is another metric called possible change. Um, So if you've ever seen a a possible change table, um, at lower levels of accuracy, there's higher percent or the range that we would expect the true value of that EPD to land two thirds of the time is wider than at higher levels of accuracy. And so that doesn't mean that the variation in the resulting progeny is gonna be less in higher accuracy animals. It's just related to the precision of our estimate of the mean essentially. So I need to throw an advertisement in here. (laughs) To, To increase your accuracies quickly, is genomics one of the most is the is it the rap, most rapidest way of increasing that accuracy right off the bat? Is that I'd, true? I'd say on young animals, yes, you can definitely increase accuracy um, through genomics. Uh, obviously, including phenotype information in there as well um, is is really going to. Um, is going to boost levels of accuracy and and you'll see that kind of feed up and down the pedigree in your herd and so um you know as you add genomics or phenotype or or maybe even not even thinking about it more generally it's just data you know whether that's genomics or, or phenotype but the more data and information you have that feeds across your entire herd or all the related individuals. And so um, it's, you know, I I would say it's important to include all of that information to get as, as precise of estimates as we possibly can. Okay. So as you're, as you're evaluating your calf crop at weaning time and deciding to which heifers to keep and which heifers to put in the feeder pen, if you do your genomics, that, gives you one one extra boost of confidence to know that your your decision making is correct is that a true statement yeah mark i i think that's a good point because uh in order to get the full benefit of genomics, the best time to do genomics is prior to making selection or replacement decisions and so 
Another way we kind of think about genomics is in progeny equivalents. And so what that means is how many progeny of that individual would you have to have to have equal levels of, of EPD accuracy? And so kind of depending on the trait, it it's the you know ranges from five to twenty five roughly, and so by including genomics in the evaluation prior to making those uh, decisions or those selection replacement decisions in your herd, then you know within those traits that you have more of that information in, included, and so your decisions can be that much more accurate when you're making them at at weaning time. As an evaluator, what kind of accuracy score would you be aiming for? Yeah, so it it, it really kind of depends, um, and, and I would say it kind of goes goes back to the the possible uh, possible change table, and so. Um, this is a little bit of where the art of breeding maybe comes in. Um, and so as you look at lower accuracy EPDs, you have higher risk of those uh, results or the true genetic potential of that animal being different than the predicted genetic potential. Whereas if you look at higher accuracy EPDs, that means we have lots and lots of progeny data. Um, we have lots of information. And so there's less risk of the true value being dramatically different uh, than what's predicted. And so a, a little bit of, I guess, as you're think about your decision-making process, you have to think of and and trade off some of that risk, I would say, is um, if you're thinking about using young animals in your herd, there there's an, you know, there's a potential that um, when we start get the, getting those, those first progeny proofs that maybe they're not performing quite as well as, as what we thought. And so that, that EPD regresses a bit as a result of that, that progeny data. Um, at the same time, there's equally as good of chance that they uh, actually perform significantly better than what we predicted. And then they, that, that animals uh, EPD would, would increase. And so, you know, some of that is, you know, you could kind of think about that maybe as a risk management type uh, approach of um, looking at, you know, the the trade off between younger animals, lower accuracy EPDs versus older animals with with higher accuracy EPDs. HI Slash Cattle Company is a generational cow-calf operation that got into the seed stock business 12 years ago to raise better bulls. Bulls that would thrive on the range. Bulls that don't need pampered or babysat. Bulls that sire calves that perform well from birth through the rail and maximize profit while minimizing discount potential. HI Slash Cattle raises Black Hereford and Angus bulls with cattlemen in mind. Our ethos is raising bulls with a higher balance. Bulls that improve performance without sacrificing maternal power, because we know it's possible. Our motto is cattle with grit, because we know nobody has time for cattle that won't work and thrive, even in the hard years. HI Slash offers age-advantaged, forage-developed bulls each spring. For more information, you can find HI Slash Cattle on Facebook or at HISLASHcattle.com. This is going to take me down another rabbit hole, but I'm curious. There's a phenomenon that you see, and this has nothing to do with accuracies. Well, maybe. As an animal gets older, we tend to see some of their EPDs slide and drop off a little bit. What is kind of the cause behind that? Um, yeah, that's... Or am I crazy? Is it just mine? <laughs> yeah. So I would say likely what it... Are, are you looking at that in terms of percentile ranking? So what can happen in terms of if you look at an animal's percentile ranking over time is that if you if you compare that to the genetic trend data within your population, so I'll just take weaning weight, for example, right? 
So if we have a steadily in, or a steady increase of weaning weight EPDs, we're continuing to breed for higher weaning weight EPDs. And if we look at um, the percentile ranking of an of an older animal over time, really what a percentile ranking does is it's a comparison of that animal to a group of of peers, and so. If his EPD value, let's just for sake of simplicity here, says he stays the same, and then we have genetic trend continuing to increase um, a weaning weight EPD, we would expect his percentile to change because the average of his group of peers is changing over time as a result of of that genetic trend. And so... um, uh, you know, I I think that that's that's definitely part of it. Um, as we uh, get more data and information, on, not only on his direct progeny but descendants and things down the line, that that increases accuracy. Um, I will say that um, I guess I've been involved in genetic evaluation for a long time now, and. Over that time frame, I think I've only gotten asked a question once where an animal's EPDs got better. And all of the other thousands and thousands of of EPD questions I've asked have been on on animals that become slightly less favorable for one reason or another. And so I think one of our tendencies is that we focus on those animals that become less favorable and maybe don't focus on other animals that have become favorable over time, because really it's kind of a a 50-50 split. And that's really human nature. I mean, I understand that, especially as we think about, you know, animals that are important within our our own herds. Um, You know, we tend to focus on those things. But I I can guarantee you that the genetic evaluation does not have a vendetta against any individual animal uh, to to march its EPDs uh, down lower over time. It's it's 100% data driven. That makes sense as things around us improve and get better, right? And that should be our ultimate goal at the end of the day. The yep. things that we did before, not quite so shiny. Yep. Do you have any tips for comparing EPDs across breed? You know, as Black Herefords, a lot of the times we see our potential customers a little more accustomed to the AHA's EPDs. And so we're always trying to educate, right? Trying to help our customer understand what they're looking at. Any tips for comparing across those breeds? Yeah, so um, you guys are actually, uh, you know, very... Interesting because you you do kind of combine for so many reasons. <laughs> <laughs> um, because you you know you you guys really interact with three genetic evals simultaneously. So you have the AGI genetic evaluation, the American Hereford evaluation, and then the IGS evaluation, which I I think is pretty much all of the evaluations that you could interact with. So um, we wouldn't want you to get bored. yeah no doubt just keep me on my toes and so you know kind of as as i think about things that are available so the u.s meat animal research center in clay center nebraska has a a large progeny test program that they call the germplasm evaluation or gpe Um, and really kind of the the goal behind that is to help with things like that. So comparison of, of EPDs uh, across different genetic evaluations. And so uh, they actually come out with a, a chart um, every year that, that kind of helps compare different different EPDs um, from different evaluations. So Hereford to Angus or um uh, Semental, and we've actually been uh, working with them probably over the last year or so um, since IGS is a, a multi-breed evaluation uh, of trying to get that kind of the adjustment factor more IGS-centric versus um, specific breed-centric. And some of that, you know, prior to IGS, every breed association ran, ran its own genetic evaluation. And so I think some of that is just 
historical and that's kind of the way it's always been been done and we and don't do that in agriculture <laughs> yeah tradition right <laughs> um, and so um it it uh you know i think we've been talking to them and and i think you know where where we're at with with igs it, it makes a lot of sense and and they've been very receptive to that um it's just Kind of figuring out the the best methodology to to go about that, and so um, I think once once it becomes more an IGS base, um, it it becomes a bit easier for for you guys because then you know you you can compare Angus, Hereford, and then to that that IGS base, but but unfortunately we're just not quite there yet with with that, so. How often do you guys go through and like kind of change or update the way that those EPDs are calculated? I don't know if algorithm is the right word, but it feels like the right word. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I would say all genetic evaluations that IGS produces is always under scrutiny. And our goal and really kind of one of our guiding principles is trying to follow the science. And if there is science and information that shows us that an update to a genetic evaluation improves our prediction accuracy, uh, which we determine that through various validation exercises, um, we're, our, we will implement that in, in the genetic evaluation. And so, you know, that, that may be some things get updated more frequently and, and some less frequently, but our goal is always to try to um, increase or, or maximize at our current levels the, the prediction accuracy of our um, of each genetic evaluation. And so, if, you know, that can take on many different forms or, or different updates um, to those evaluations. And there's no... I would say there's no time frame. It's just kind of as things come up, we um, evaluate those, validate them very extensively. Um, that's about three quarters of my job, I think, is running validations. Uh, but validate those changes do actually improve prediction. It's, and then once uh, once we have that, then we can implement those. Mark, any more questions for Ryan while we've got him in the hot seat? I do. I do. I, I So I've written down a couple of questions that I get asked on a frequent basis, and this is going to circle us back maybe to the beginning of this podcast. I have commercial breeders come to my place and they'll look at the catalog as they're looking at bulls and they'll they'll come to me and they'll say, will this bull really produce 50 more pounds at weaning than the average? What do you say to that? How do you answer that? so that they understand how you actually interpret an EPD, weaning or yearling, same thing. Yeah, so I, I, I think it's important to to understand, you know, those differences in means. And and sometimes depending on the, the size of your herd and environmental conditions, you, you may not see, you know, full genetic expression, some of that, like the hard winter that Jen uh, spoke to, um, you know, can influence that. But the the goal behind those EPDs is is to try to identify those genetic differences. And so, um, you know, I think obviously it's the best estimate of genetic in differences among individuals that we have. Um, you know, obviously, if if we're over predicting as as data would come in, that would tend to bring those back but you know for the information that we have at the time and and for the data that we have at the time that's the best estimate of genetics differences than we would versus the mean or or two individuals in the population okay so so let me give you the answer that I give my my commercial buyers <laughs> and that's I tell them if you have a bull a that has a 50 pound weaning weight and bull B, who has a 60-pound weaning weight, and you breed them to similar background cows, you can expect bull B to produce 10 pounds more than bull A. And so if weaning weight's important to you, that's the direction you should go. Is that 
Is that an yep. accurate way to describe it to these guys? It's not actually just pounds that they're going to see. It's a difference between two bulls that they're comparing. Yep. 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 You're exactly right, Mark. And it's that there is maybe two important things that, that you said in there that, um, that maybe folks kind of tend to gloss over is that it's, um, genetically similar dams is a big one. And I think that's more maybe important from a seed stock side because, um, you know, people tend to correct it mate a lot. And they said, well, that not all of my high weaning weight bulls calves, you know, were, were that are the, I used a really high weaning weight bull, um, in my seed stock herd and it didn't necessarily correlate. Well, it, it's important that one of the assumptions is when you're comparing those two animals is that the genetic level of the female side of that is, is similar or the same. And an important other thing to, to kind of consider as well is like in the example you used of 50 versus 60, the difference there is on average, we would expect the bull out of the, or with the weaning weight of 60s calves to on average weigh 10 pounds more than the bull with 50. And what's important there is that as we think about that, we're thinking about a mean of a distribution or a bell-shaped distribution. And so if we think about those distributions, there's gonna be some of those calves out of that higher weaning weight bull that are going to weigh less than some of the bull and the are the lower weaning weight bull. It's really just as we think of a bell-shaped curve, it's kind of the middle or the the height of that bell-shaped curve is what we're predicting there. And so really it's it's kind of an average difference there. And, and sometimes in in smaller groups, uh that becomes um a bit more challenging to see because you know we're still assuming the same distribution right and that let's just say theoretically you have thousands and thousands of calves out of those two bulls it becomes very easy and very obvious to see those distributions whereas if you have just a few you're kind of you could randomly be pulling out of those out of that bell-shaped curve of what set of genes each one of those are going to be inheriting. And so it becomes a, a bit more challenging to see. And so I think the hard part is in those situations, it doesn't seem like the EPDs are working, and I'm air quoting, uh, but really they are. It's just a little more challenging to, to identify that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. I think that's a great explanation. I think it would have been awfully embarrassing if he'd told you on air here that no, you have been asking all of your customers. That's that's where the edit button comes in. (laughs) Strike that. So so the next question I have, Ryan, is when we switched to IGS a year ago or a little over a year ago, there was a lot of questions that I got about multi-sire uh, representation in in a contemporary group, how important that is. Can you do you use that data on a single sire contemporary group, or is that just uh, information that that is put in and not really uh, factored into the EPD uh, evaluation? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So we would still use that information. The the challenge becomes as you compare or you um as you think about a contemporary group and you have a single sire contemporary group, it, it becomes challenging to change the sire's EPDs in that contemporary group because he represents the only sire within that contemporary group. And so but I'll just continue to use your example before of a sire with a weaning weight 50 and a sire of a weaning weight 60. So if we only have calves out of the one sire, he's representing the whole variation within the contemporary group. And so we can't tell genetic differences from the sire side. We still can from the dam side because they have some, they have different uh, genetic backgrounds to them. but 
we can't necessarily differentiate sires versus when you have multiple sires uh, within a contemporary group. And let's just say that one sire's calves outperform the other, then that'll change the the EPDs on on the sires as well. And so, um, you know, depending on on herd size and and things of that nature, I know, you know, one of the challenges may be, well, we don't need 15 bulls for, you know, for our herd size or, you know, that's an extreme example. But, um, you know, that may be things where AI and stuff like that could could be helpful in, in trying to get other outside sires. Um, there, it's actually a, a pretty popular uh, concept and, and, you know, is talked about a lot um, when, when EPDs were, were first, I guess, kind of being introduced is a reference sire. And so what a reference sire in a, a contemporary group would be maybe a, a high accuracy sire that we have a good uh, known level of genetics in that animal. Um, and then you can use that to kind of compare uh, younger sires too. And so, um, you know, as we think about data quality and what's the maximum data quality, you know, obviously getting the phenotypes recorded and submitted is is important. Um, having, uh, co- you know, complete records on each animal is very important. Mal- you know, having as many, uh, I guess, comparisons or at least multiple comparisons within a contemporary group also helps us to determine genetic differences on in animals. The, re- the reason I ask that is because we have we do have a lot of breeders that are in the very small cow numbers like in the 10 head range or less and yep. and they just don't have if they're not using ai then obviously they don't need two bulls or yep. and so sometimes they feel like well what's the use of reporting my data it's it's not important and i'm glad you said that you you still use that data and it is important that they report all those calves under that sire and it may not be as they won't change and drive their EPDs either way, but it still is important to get all of that data recorded. Yep. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's always a, a, a challenge. Um, but the, the other challenge is having no data, then that's not a good, I guess to me, that doesn't sound like a good substitute for that. Correct. So, so here's the million dollar question, and and this is one that I've been thinking about since um, I got invited to come on here. If I've got a really uh, high valued animal, female in my herd, and I, you know, I she's my pride and joy, and I breed her to a bull, and it just doesn't the the mating does not nick. It just is a is a disaster. Do I kill her EPDs or do I hurt the bull's EPDs or where's that? Who's going to take the brunt of the, of the failed mating? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I would say, you know, one thing that that's important to keep in mind is that EPDs are not a guarantee. And each mating is a completely random assortment of genes that each animal inherits. And so um, as we think about, you know, this situation that that you, um, I guess, alluded to or, or, or spoke to me here, that the challenge is, is that depending on, um, I would say this more depends on level of accuracy of each animal respectively. Um, so if the bull is extremely low accuracy and the cow is extremely low accuracy and you've never recorded a, uh, phenotype on either of them, and then this is the first amount of information that the genetic evaluation sees, they're both EPDs are probably going to change pretty drastically. Whereas if um you have you have been recording 
data and information on you know both sides of the pedigree it's um it is you know multiple generations have had this data recorded um and you know we we can better identify well maybe this was more of a fluke and 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 not necessarily the the representation and and especially you know if you think about a a you know, a, a bull, let's say, that has thousands and thousands of progeny, the, this one progeny is not going to have, you know, necessarily as as big of an influence on its resulting EPD um, versus if it's one, this is the first progeny has recorded it, it could that it could necessarily change. And so I think that that also is is vitally important of why it's important to record entirety of a calf crop um, is because, you know, if, you, if you're only recording the good ones, let's say, or the top half, then essentially what you're doing is giving a biased estimate of the mean of that contemporary group. And so it's very important to record all the data on all the animals that you can so that you have the most information of that of that group. And so, um, you know, I guess to kind of circle back and answer your question, I would say more likely depending on the level of accuracy, whoever's lower at, neither of them will just take the brunt of it. It's more who has less information or who has a lower accuracy EPD has the opportunity to more likely have their EPD change more dramatically. Okay, I'm, I'm glad you, you addressed the point of reporting all your calves in that contemporary group because that's that's kind of what I was hoping that you would say without without coaching yep. me. But <laughs> how how that is so vitally important. It's something that we've been preaching for for almost a year now of, of get all of those calves into that contemporary group. Even even the even the the we all have those that we're not very proud of, mm -hmm. but that those actually help you as a breeder more yeah, than they I, hurt you. Yeah, then, because, then you take them to the sale barn and get rid of them and, and they're out of your head. Yeah. But. <laughs> yeah, but the challenge is, and you can think about it, I'll just use weaning weight, for example. Uh, let's say you have 10 head and the average of that 10 head is is 500 pounds. But you only re you only report the top five, your your best five. And then what ends up happening is the evaluation only sees those five. The evaluation doesn't know that the average of the 10 was 500. It only knows that the average of those five was 550, for example. And so actually what you end up doing is those animals that are three, four, and five in the top five actually look like they're below the contemporary group average versus if you completely report the group, they would actually be above. And so it's very, 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 very important to uh, record all of the data within a, a contemporary group. And so that's why you see a lot of association go to more inventory type based reporting systems is because um, really kind of the main driving factor behind those is is not to nickel and dime people as they try to turn in one piece of data or the other or, or incentivize. Another way to think about this is incentivizing um, non-data submission. It's to try to get as much data and information into the evaluation as they can. Thank you. Ryan, Great you answer. have been so generous with your time, and I better let you go before you get marked down a whole huge rabbit hole about whole holder reporting and how passionately he feels about that. <laughs> you uh, we led can, him to a dangerous We can make plague. this a two-part series <laughs> if we need, Jed. How many, how many episodes do you want people to have me draw? <laughs> We'll we'll let this one sink in, and then we'll let's tackle that whole herd reporting because it's baby. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. You can get in on the conversation over at our Facebook page at Black Herford Chronicles, where we'd love to hear from you. 
Of course, don't forget to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.